Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, Voices from the Irish Life and Lore series. I'm Morris O'Keefe. Host Castle in North County, Dublin, has been lived in by the Lawrence family for over 800 years. And sadly, all that came to an end recently when Christopher Gatesford St. Lawrence passed away. Provisions had been left for him by the new owners who had bought it in 2018 uh, for Christopher and his wife Merle to continue living there until he died. Now, sadly, it's come to an end of an era and a great loss to the state. To tell the story, I spoke to Christopher Gatesford St. Lawrence, and I also spoke to his son, Julian. I also spoke to Christopher's wife, Meryl. And we start with Meryl talking about her past. Her marriage to Christopher was not the first time that a Guinness had married into the St. Lawrence family. And there's a wonderful picture in there, because when I married Christopher, a Julian was very nice about it, and he said, well, Meryl, not the first time the Guinness family had married into the St. Lawrence's. And, she, and we've got out the photograph, and it's marvellous. But that um, was one of the brewing Guinnesses marrying the last Earl of Hoth's daughter. Yes. Well, actually, the third Earl of Hoth's daughter, not quite the last one, but that was the story there. Your, your own uh, upbringing, you were brought, as you say, at the, from the age of 15. You were, you were educated... Uh, well, I just here, left my main right? school in, in England. I just left that. And, I, and then I was sent to, naturally, like the sort of thing, one of was, to a civilising school in London, you know, that sort of thing. And um, then I think I had a, quite a, nearly a year in Paris. It was another world, wasn't it? Another world. But, but you, I suppose you were, you were, um, you were brought up... Uh, um, privileged, uh, very. To, to I mean, have looking this back on it, very. To have yeah. the opportunities, very. very. I mean, it was, mm. then I wanted to read social science in Trinity, and my father wouldn't let me. And I think he was right mm. when he said the first thing is your voice will finish you. You see, we spoke with an English voice like that. You hadn't really a faintest idea. We saw the terrible poverty in Dublin. You won't remember that, but I remember it. Appalling. Yeah. And, and we were shocked. I was shocked, Richard. I was absolutely shocked, Richard. No child had children's clothes on. They had um, the father's sort of jacket, which was, came down to there. Mm. And they were, it was so sad. And it was huge families. 
you saw them in York Street particularly because that was the sort of time we came in on that and it, it was terrible and anyway but I think he was right because you see it, social science was more than just you know doing the university course it was it which is what I wanted to do was to go into the slums and try and help in 2014, when I visited Hope Castle to meet Merle Gates, Gatesford St. Lawrence, I spoke to her at great length there about her father's experiences uh, during the Great War. And she also mentioned that there were three members of the Lawrence family from Hope Castle who also were involved in the Great War. Three from this house alone. Three, three young men from this house went, went to that war. So they'd all been at school in England, to a man. Not one of them had been to school, I would say. Not one of them had been to school here. I, no, I'm sure they hadn't. Because even we were sent to school in England. It was, that was a different outlook on life. But, uh, was education in this country not good enough? It wasn't. It was, yes, it was considered too parochial, I think. And it was tough. It was very tough, I mean, for... My only son was sent over, against my wishes very much, because my father, having been sent over as a small boy, first to Summerfields and then to Eton, um, said, don't send him, don't send him, there's no need now, the schools are good here, you know, there's no need mm -hmm. to send him. And my first husband said, oh, he had to go. But all his contemporaries were still going, that would be in 1965. Yeah. It was still going to England. At that time. At that time. Mm, imagine, yeah. yeah. That's all stopped now completely, I think. Mm -hmm. But my brother's two boys are all educated in England. Mm -hmm. It was a feeling, I suppose, of perhaps like India, really, sort of an empire. Still the feeling it was, there. still the feeling of British loyalty. I do remember a slight, um, a slight sort of hiccup when... Coslow came back from Canada and mm -hmm. said we were no longer in the Commonwealth. And that was, for our sort of families, a slight hiccup, I think. It was very difficult to be a republic. And yet, so then my, uh, and all the English relations who wrote letters, you know, my yes, I really feel that now is the moment when you can no longer, you can no longer continue to live in Ireland. So that Anglo-Irish yes, tag is quite strong. Quite strong. And my father said, well, I was born here, and I'm going to die. I'm very kid about the dying. And um, so we stayed. And most people stayed. There wasn't an exodus at that stage. Okay. The big exodus had happened in 1921, hadn't it? Mm -hmm. Huge numbers of people went. And um, but the, well, there was another exodus, really, when the wealth tax happened. That hit people. Mostly Americans. That was, that was a big mistake. Yeah. And my best friend was Mrs. Hexter. She was the Hertz car millionaires. She employed 11 people outside on 300 acres. She had another five or six employed in the house. Look at that for employment. Mm -hmm. And Richie Ryan manages to... She said, I can't stay. I can't afford it. I visited uh, Christopher Gatesford St. Lawrence in the uh, wing of the castle in... A cold January day in 2020, after the castle had been sold. The St. Lawrence is very, it's associated with this, this, this area, this place, for something like 800 years. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Norman. In, yeah. In, in, but the Gatesford, 
Where? I went to the Wiltshire family, and yeah. and my great grandfather married a St. Lawrence daughter. Simple as that. Yes. So, but so he, he, my grandfather inherited from his maternal uncle. But don't think the uncle, uncle thought of them as an English family. They were a Wiltshire family, straight. Does that change things? I, I, I brought up more as large in ways, but my father was brought up as a gayster. When I'm talking, I'm talking as if I was a St. Lawrence. Yeah. Not a gayster. Tell me about your two aunts. I, yeah. I mean, I had a bachelor uncle. Tom, yes. Yeah, and one of the aunts, his sisters, would be here at home being doing the duties of a wife, shall we say, doing, <laughs> just looking after the cook and everything else, running the house. Christopher was only 10 years old when the Second World War broke out and his father was involved, so he spent a lot of the war years in Haute. And in 1955, he inherited the castle. And he talks here about running the farm himself. Where was the income coming from to keep keep the whole place going? Was a, it a combination of ground rents and the farm income. You know, I mean, simple as that. Well, I was very happy being a farmer. I mean, ground rents came in and you had an agent who pulled and looked after that. But I mean, <coughs> there was a farm here. There were 120 milking cows always, a dairy, we delivered milk. Uh, we were farming at that stage about 400 acres. And you had the milk grounds and you, you all needed organising. It wasn't in the best of good, it hadn't been very well organised for the previous five, six years because my uncle had lost interest and was devoting and nearly and killed himself working for the Knights of Malta oh. and, and the ambulance corps, which he started. And therefore, the farm was getting into a... The steward of the farm was a beef farmer and it was a dairy herd. And he was a very honest and straight man, but he was not the person who should have been steward. I see. And uh, did he stay, or did you let him go, or who was he? Who was this man? There was a man called uh, Barrister, and he came from Westmead when he was a Westmead farming family. And he, very sadly, uh, soon after I arrived, or I think he had it when he when I arrived. He had, I'll call it, the drunken disease. Um, <laughs> he wasn't. He was. He didn't drink. But if you saw him walking along the street, and I know he was hauled up on one or two occasions. He, he walked as if he was drunk. Oh, I see. <laughs> he couldn't walk. I mean, he, he, I call it the drunken disease. It's got some yeah. official name. But if you saw him 
walking down the street, you would have thought he was drunk, going oh, was all over the place, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but he hadn't probably got a drop of alcohol on him. <laughs> Oh, that was uh, you know, unfor- I mean, unfortunate, really. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. unfortunate. I mean, who, who, was the had, ag- who was the agent here at, uh, in your time then? I don't think, in the traditional sense, we didn't have an agent here. The farm steward ran the farm. Who, oh, and who was the steward? Well, he and, was the steward. Yeah, he was the steward. Yeah. And then the head gardener, and there was a commercial garden here. Uh, well, over 20 people uh, at one stage employed in the garden and, yeah. and nurseries and tomato houses and the farm had around 20. And the farm in 1932 had been the most modern farm in Ireland, without a doubt, dairy. And there was what was the breed of cattle that uh, well, was I mean, it was Frisians and Jerseys. Yes. Days. But, and it was a, a lot of the, there were learners, because they were as good as Mary for any agricultural colleges. And a lot of the stewards of the 1960s around the country had been taught as learners here. So Hope it was like da- a little school. Yeah, Hope Domain Dairy. But my uncle was extraordinary to the extent that he was extremely efficient uh, when his mind was on it. And he got a very modern dairy going, etc. And we delivered milk, etc. Bottled it. Um, well, when he got it, had got it going, he left it to the steward, really, to, mm. and then concentrated on the gardens. Well, then, after he concentrated on the gardens, which he never really finished and never really got going, other than it won prizes in the RDS and Christ knows what, he never really got it going as a commercial enterprise. He, at that stage, he paid no attention to the farm, really. And oh, then, then, then his mind went on to the Knights of Malta, and he paid no attention to either. We definitely sold land near Sutton, 1965. A building estate went up. The majority of the people who owned Offington Park houses were airline pilots, that type of person, you know what I mean? And that was farmland, which I sold off uh, for building. And it was on ground rents, in fact, uh, because it brought in more income. We end at St Anne's. Oh, yes. St Anne's was Hoverstate. Yeah. And then from St Anne's to here, you can say it was Hoverstate. Fascinating um, but, but, property to have at that but, time. No, but I hope estate was a very big estate, but and probably the worst of it was 
hove when it came to farming. The golf course was more luck than anything else. The golf course, people were saying that I ought to have tea rooms for the rhododendrons. And I can't, couldn't see any point in putting up a building. I put up a car park, but I couldn't see any point in putting up a building which was for three month season. Yes. And so I, there's one bit of land around the reservoir which was suitable for a short golf course. And so I decided that I'd build, if I built the tea rooms, I'd build a building which also did the short golf course. I don't think we were in the county then. I think we were in the corporation still. And there were two road, roads pointing into the field in front of the house. Yeah. And so you couldn't, and I knew more about golf then because I'd looked at the municipal courses in the Croydon district. And I, you didn't have to get planning permission for a golf course then. So I immediately built a golf course, stopped building the par three, and immediately started building a golf course in front of the house to stop it being built on. I mean, I didn't want the council house estate yeah. to come into this field, literally there, and to come up to the moat. And so I built a golf course to stop. Stop development coming in. towards, yes. Yeah. Well, you were And successful. I reckon I would have had a lot of signatures behind that thing when they tried to acquire it, saying yeah. no. Yeah. We want it as a golf course. So for all those reasons, were you happy that the golf course did, uh, uh, you know, was developed there? Oh, very, because I didn't know it at the time. I didn't put up a building, which was, turned out to be far too small. And I expected the thing to turn over and to make a little money. I was... I was not expecting it to be a loss, I was expecting it, but I wasn't expecting it. Uh, what happened? Uh, we opened the golf course in May 73, nine holes. And 50,000 people played the first year. You've come to an end of an era here. Um, obviously, it's very sad and, and to see it all going. Um, uh, how do you feel yourself? Do you do you think that um, at this stage I, know, I say no comment, or even um, I'm going to make no comment on the present situation. Okay, and so, but that tells me that you were very attached to this place uh, all your life. Seventy years, uh, I think, since you first came over uh, and took on the reins. Um, but you're, you'll see your days out here. Is that my right in saying that? I'm going to live in this house until I die. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. Mm. <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> Listen, 
It was a pleasure, and thank you so much for talking to me again, indeed. I'm in Cool Carrigan in Kildare, and I'm talking to Julian Gatesford, St. Lawrence. You grew up in uh, Haut, uh, in the castle. I was brought up there. Uh, I was educated in England, um, and uh, uh, then went to university in England and uh, did 20 years in the, roughly 20 years in the city as a fund manager and then um, came back in uh, 1999 when uh, my father was 70 and was allegedly going to um, um, step down and hand everything over to me, Um, uh, which um, he did to an extent, but not um, 100%. Um, So I've um, uh, spent the first 20 years of my life there and um, uh, the last 20 years of my life and um, the intervening 20 years basically in London. So uh, uh, what does it mean to you, the, the history, uh, the, the, the background to the St. Lawrence's and the castle and 800 years of history? Um, it um, well, it means a, um, a lot. I think it's a tribute to Ireland that um, uh, one family should have um, managed to remain in the same place for um, over 800 um, years un- un- undisturbed, essentially. Um, the um, house itself became has become increasingly um, impractical. And um, uh, it's um, large, it's uh, over 30,000 square feet. Um, And um, we ended up finding that um, uh, one couple over 60 and one couple over um, 80 were um, rattling around inside the um, thing. And um, uh, there comes a point when... um, some way the house itself is taking over your life rather than you controlling um, okay. your life yourself. At the time, your your grand uncle Tom, isn't it, uh, was in the castle and and uh, well, he, he yes, he, he um, when my um, great grandfather died in the early thirties, yes, Tom inherited the castle. Uh, he had a um, uh, career in, um, was in the Seaforth Highlanders during the um, First World War. Uh, he won um, uh, an MC with two bars, um, uh, and uh, there were about 30,000 MCs in the First World War, um, I think 600 VCs, and I think about 130 people won yeah. an MC with two bars. Uh, so he was um, basically um, suicidally um, brave, had some sort of um, breakdown after the war. Um, and um, was never expected to marry. Um, quite possibly he was um, gay. If he was gay, um, he certainly wasn't um, actively gay, um, uh, but um, 
he um, uh, and he ran the um, uh, estate in sort of um, fairly Edwardian style until the he died in 1955. Mm-hmm. Um, he felt that he'd cut down enormously from um, the close to 30 gardeners they had before the Second World War when he um, cut back to about 10 or 12 afterwards. Um, I see, yes. And, and did you live long enough, or did he live, live long enough for you to know him? No, um, uh, uh, he and he died in 1955. Uh, my grandfather, who'd been a naval officer through both yeah. world, world Wars, died in September 57, and I was born in two months later in November. Oh, I see. Yeah, uh, so I didn't know yeah. either of them. I knew my um, uh, my, gr- my grandmother, uh, who survived into the, into the 1980s, but um, my father's mother. Your father's mother. Mary Claire. Yeah. And so... What was she like? Oh, she was a um, she was quite in- engagingly vague uh, in in some uh, ways, but she was very um, child friendly. She kept um, uh, tins of sweets and that sort of um, <laughs> <laughs> stuff to lure her um, grandchildren, grandchildren around. Yes, and she lived in um, uh, the wing of the house that my father's in at the moment. Oh, uh, I see. Yes. Um, uh, when my grandfather retired from the navy, um, he um, came back to Hove, and um, uh, his brother was running the the main house, and he lived in the um, in the wing that we call Tower House. I see. Um, for the last ten years or so of his life, but when uh, Tom died. Uh, um, the estate essentially went straight to my father because um, my grandfather had no wish in his um, mid-60s to take take over running the place. Okay, and your father was very young uh, when he did take it over. He was only uh, 25. Well, there was a... My father was in the... Um, uh, had a commission in the army, in the British army, in the Scots Greys, which um, had been uh, commanded by his uncle. And um, uh, it took him um, sort of a year and a half or so to extricate himself from that um, mm. uh, responsibility. At the time, there was a dairy going, there was a, a market gardening going, um, so he inherited all this, didn't he? Well, there would have been... Um, uh, there was a farm manager, and um, yeah. uh, he would have basically run the thing on a um, day-to-day yeah. ba- basis, and um, the garden was under a um, head gardener called Mr Russell, who I can vaguely um, remember... Um, uh, my very early re- yeah. re- uh, use, but um, um, fairly soon after my father took over, he cut back quite um, severely on the um, 
amount of gardening stuff and that sort of thing that there was. Those early memories of yours, um, how, what do you remember about how things were working, how things were going there? Um, well, I, I can remember uh, I was brought up in a nursery with a um, uh, quite um, uh, severe and I think somewhat disappointed um, uh, spinster from um, Galway, who was our nanny, who um, um, I think possibly missed a vocation as a nun. But um, <laughs> After Julian finished his education, he went to London, and in 1998 he returned to Holt Castle and Estate to take over the management there. What was it like uh, working with your father, uh, relationship-wise? Was it was it easy? Um, well, I didn't uh, um, particularly work with him. I um, I did do um, uh, between uh, school and university. I did uh, two or three months working for him, and um, that um, doing um, farm accounts and various other things that. Um, in the um, uh, spring, I suppose, of 1976. Um, and that convinced me that um, it would be um, better that we didn't work um, together. Uh, so um, uh, when I came back, he, um, uh, about six months later, stepped down from any um, day-to-day involvement in yeah. running things and um, uh, he um, sort of concentrated on things like um, he did a lot of work in the woods and that sort of thing he's always been keen on on that uh, and um, uh, so uh, the only things that I was you know involved with with him were you know strategic decisions that we might take rather than um day-to-day um uh decisions yeah Yeah. and it it was quite a um we were employing about 60 people you know it was a 80 bedroom hotel so um there were layers of management um you know at that at that time um because um uh, the hospitality industry is quite labour intensive. Okay, so what you know, as the years rolled on, then yeah, the business. How was it going? Was it, you know, certainly the early nineties and the boom years. You, you must have been doing very well. Well, the early nineties, my father was running it, um, and um, uh, that was. Um, uh, probably the period when the golf was generating the most money. Uh, as um, uh, the 90s went on, a um, uh, certain number of uh, golf courses opened um, in competition. Uh, so the days when we had um, people queuing on... I mean, they started queuing on uh, Friday night in order to go out on Saturday morning 
um, you know, mm. people took it in terms to spend uh, spend a night in a car in a car park. Um, that, which Sorry. happened in the 1990s, uh, that the, you know, courses opening in competition, you know, reduced that. Um, but um, the... Um, uh, uh, business in, you know, the early 2000s was comfortably profitable mm. uh, without um, having quite the same numbers on the golf course as um, had been the case um, previously. All right. So your, your um, oh, I suppose your decision to sell it, uh, that only happened uh, quite recently. We were approached by um, a company called Tetrarch who um, uh uh, run, uh, run Mount Juliet, um, and um, uh, and had bought and sold the Passport um, Hotel. Were you dealing with one particular person, or with the the whole company, or uh, who, who makes up? Uh, well, uh, the, uh, the managing director of um, Tetrarch is a guy called. Um, uh, Michael McGinnigan, who lives um, Yeoman's Town, not far from here, and um, uh, he uh, he was the principal person that we were um, dealing with. Dealing with, um, and um, uh, it was um, it took. Um, uh, the best part of a year and a half. Well, it took a year and a half to, mm. you know, to actually um, uh, shape the deal, and then um, uh, for them uh, to find the finance for um, for the deal, and mm. uh, and then complete it. And and uh, the stipulation being that uh, your father could live in the place on, until he died no we we, we had a um, uh, decision to make about the uh, house because the wing in which um, uh, I to which I moved back um, uh, is a essentially a comfortable manageable five bedroom house um, and um, uh, is quite separate from the um, main part of the house with the main rooms as any one connecting door at the moment. Um, I thought about um, keeping that permanently. I mean, not including it in the sale, which I could perfectly well have negotiated without any great um, problem. Um, but I decided that um, uh, if we weren't going to be running the estate, um, that uh, probably... 90% of the things that uh, Tetrarch did would be fine as far as I was concerned and 10% would really um, irritate me um, and um, uh, looking out the window and um, getting irritated didn't seem to be a terribly um, clever uh, overall strategy. Uh, so um, uh what um, we decided to do instead was um, my father made it clear that um, he's been um, at Hof since um, uh, 
1957, and um, it was his parents' home for 10 years before that, um, uh, that um, uh, he wanted to go out of the house in a, um, in a box. Uh, so we took a 20-year uh, lease on the, um, on the wing, uh, and um, uh, given that that's, um, but he's 89 at the moment, uh, we reckon that will probably um, see him out. Not guaranteed, but um, <laughs> uh, um, the likelihood is that it uh, that it will. Yeah. Um, and um, so yourself and your wife Anne, then you've moved down here uh, to uh, County Kildare, and and um, uh, very much downsizing. <laughs> well, we bought a we've bought a house. Which um, is called Castle Size, which actually we've renamed Castle Downsize, um, um, which uh, is still quite a large house, uh, and um, uh, we'll need an awful lot of work um, doing to it. Yeah. Uh, but we'll be able to um, take quite a large amount of the furniture and pictures and stuff that's at Hove at the moment. Oh, yes, yes. All, all the family heirlooms. Uh, yeah, well, not all of them, but, yes, uh, but, but, but a substantial number yeah. of them. Um, and uh, um, we were fortunate in that um, and, um, uh, Sheila Wilson-Wright died during the um, summer. Um, John, her ex-husband, was uh, my godfather, and I've known Rob and Anna all my life, so um, uh, they asked us if we'd um, had Sheila's funeral, as it happens, um, if um, we'd take this house. And uh, it works very well because we can stay here. It's a uh, stepping stone. Uh, uh, as, as long as um, it takes yeah. to um, get Castle Size back into shape. Yeah. Julian Gatesford, St. Lawrence, uh, thank you so much for talking to me. And, and I know it wasn't easy, um, but thank you very much indeed. It was thank a pleasure. You. Thank, thank you. you. You have been listening to clips taken from interviews carried out with Christopher Gatesford St. Lawrence, who sadly passed away recently, to his wife, Meryl, and also to Christopher's son, Julian. All these interviews are available on our designated oral history website. That's irishlifeandlore.com. I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.